As I said, the quote read earlier for the spoken meditation is from Jim Edwards, one of my favorite undergraduate um, philosophy professors. He was also the campus atheist. There were quite a few other professors at Furman University then and now who would fit comfortably within the framework of our atheist, humanist, agnostic group, but Dr. Edwards was particularly uh, forthright about his atheism. Now, he wasn't brash, arrogant, or obnoxious about his lack of traditional religious beliefs, but neither was he shy or ashamed about it. He was out of the atheist closet, uh, if you will. I took three different philosophy classes with him, 20th century philosophy, senior seminar on Nietzsche and Foucault, and philosophy of religion. And that philosophy of religion class was based on his book that the quote came from earlier called The Plain Sense of Things, The Fate of Religion in an Age of Normal Nihilism. Now the term nihilism comes from the Latin root nil, which just means nothing. How many of you have seen the Coen Brothers film Big Lebowski? Anybody? If you should all go see it if you haven't. Uh, it's great. Uh, you may recall some, if you have, some important plot developments involving self-proclaimed nihilists. In one of the more memorable of those scenes, the dude, played by Jeff Bridges, is asked by a young woman named Bunny if he will blow on her toenails to help them dry. Um, she had recently applied toenail polish. Before doing so, he nervously asks if the man near her, floating in the nearby pool, would mind if he did so. Bunny reassures him. Uli doesn't care about anything. He's a nihilist. <laughs> Looking askance at this so-called nihilist floating obliviously in the pool, the dude replies sarcastically about how much work it must be believing in nothing. He says, that must be exhausting. Uh, now, apathetic um, belief in nothing is one potential response to normal nihilism. But it's far from the only potential response. When Dr. Edwards talks about the fate of religion in an age of normal nihilism, what he means is more a sense of ironic detachment that can pervade our postmodern world. It's a sense of arbitrariness or historical contingency that comes from realizing that we human beings are neither the pinnacle of creation nor the center of the universe. I hope I'm not bursting anybody's bubble this morning. Um, now, we are the most advanced species, arguably, on this one planet, but this one planet on which we inhabit is on the periphery of one spiral galaxy that we call the Milky Way. We're out on one of the, the tips of that spiral of the Milky Way, and that's merely one galaxy among more than 100 billion galaxies. One hundred billion galaxies in the universe. That's what we know of so far that we can see from our perspective on the, not even the edge of the universe, because where's the center? But that's a separate sermon. Uh, similarly, it's been said that Darwin made atheism respectable by giving us a way of explaining how complex life could evolve from simpler life without divine intervention. Now, we're talking about all of this a lot more in depth on Tuesday nights, probably for the next, well, into the spring, in a class called Journey of the Universe. But I'll, so if you want to talk more about it, come there. Uh, but I'll say a little bit more this morning. From the perspective of normal nihilism, there's not one clear, 
overarching, singular, right way of acting or believing. And to use one of Dr. Edwards's flavored metaphors, all of our various philosophic or religious paths, whether Christianity or paganism, secular humanism or Buddhism, can each begin to seem in our pluralistic postmodern world like just one more store in the shopping mall that is our life. Each hopes to attract our time, attention, and money, but all have increasing difficulty making the case that they have access to capital T truth once and for all in a way that would satisfy all people for all time, whatever that would even mean when you're talking about a universe that's 13.7 billion years and counting. Looking at specifically at traditional Western God language from the perspective of normal nihilism, even the word God begins to look like just one more, one among many, historically contingent words in human language. And even human language is just one more historically contingent thing that evolved arbitrarily, you know, they didn't have to evolve. Um, so in some sense, uh, if God does exist in some sense, we can be assured, as the late Unitarian Universalist Forrest Church, Forrest Church used to say, that God is not God's name. We know that much for sure. We Unitarian Universalists draw explicitly from six different sources, some of which are traditionally theistic, and use some form of the word God traditionally, some of which are non-theistic or even atheistic. In recent weeks and months, I've enjoyed reflecting with many of you about how and why we structure our worship service, drawing from each of these six sources, trying to draw from them with integrity. Why we worship the way we do, ways we might consider worshiping differently. I have no illusions of being able to please everyone completely all of the time, as the joke goes, where there are three Unitarian Universalists, there are at least eight opinions. <laughs> but I am open to experimentation about what helps create, um, in the language of our UU principles, spiritual growth in our congregation. What helps create a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. Now, one example um, of the fruit of these ongoing discussions in recent weeks has been changing the congregational response to our sharing of joys and sorrows from a spoken unison affirmation to the singing of the hymn, Spirit of Life. Music can be much more powerfully resonant and comforting than words alone. Um, Augustine famously said that the one who sings prays twice. Sorry if that makes any of you who don't like to pray feel like you're praying when you're singing. Yeah, we can talk about it later. Uh, and unlike the term God, spirit of life has a lot less baggage and can be interpreted from a theistic or an atheistic point of view. From a theistic perspective, spirit of life could be understood as a more palatable name for God without all that heavy baggage. Uh, a more palatable name for God, that sense of something larger than yourself that, you, that calls you to compassion justice, freedom. In contrast, from an atheistic or religious humanist perspective, spirit of life could be understood as the awe and inspiring wonders of finding ourselves here on this planet, if only for arbitrary contingent reasons, finding ourselves here awake and alive, if only for a short period of time, and being grateful for that spirit of life that animates us.
Now, another change that we made this morning that Laura said uh, was the words that we used to sing our children to religious education. We changed the line, may the love of God surround you, to may the power of love surround you. It was also interesting to learn from many of you in that discussion that many of you have been covertly changing the lyrics for years uh, to things like power of love or may the love of all surround you. So if you've been listening closely, you would have heard some uh, dissenting lyrics uh, already. Now, one of the many reasons I personally have no problem with changing the lyrics to May the Power of Love Surround You is that we have many adults in this congregation who are atheists with very good reasons for their atheism and many parents in this congregation who wish to raise their children as atheists, but who nonetheless deeply value religious community. Now, these individuals typically value in particular the fifth source of UUism, humanist teachings which counsel us to heed the guidance of reason, the results of science and warn us against idolatries of the mind and idolatries of the spirit. But there are, of course, five other sources of UUism, like it or not, that some of which tend more toward various forms of theism. And if you flip through our two UU hymnals, you'll find quite a few references explicitly to God, that pesky three-letter word. So to the consternation of some and for the reassurance of others, you will still hear the word God sometimes here at UUCF, but to substitute um, power of love is arguably more helpful and appropriate for singing our children to religious education because it reflects the language used in their curriculum, like spirit of life, spirit of mystery and wonder, spirit of love and mystery, I think that you heard Laura say earlier. Now, for those of you who follow politics closely, I suspect this whole discussion invokes memory of that recent Orwellian moment in the Democratic National Convention a few weeks ago when the moderator acting as Big Brother railroaded the reinsertion of God um, back into the Democratic Party platform. He needed a two-thirds majority vote and for voice acclamation, and he did not get it, I think, obviously, if you watch the video, but he took the vote three times and then just declared it, and it was actually already said on the, if you, if you look at the Jumbotron, it, already, it actually said that it passed before it. It was really a Orwellian Big Brother moment. Uh, I'll, I'll footnote the video if you're curious. But honestly, the whole matter was overblown. Even before the word God was reinserted into the DNC platform, the platform already mentioned faith, 11 times, religion or religious nine times, church two times, and clergy one time. But of course, the headline didn't read any of that. It read, Democrats take God out of platform. But honestly, how much the word God is used by almost all politicians, um, it just mostly involves cynical political pandering and bad theology, such as the unspoken rule that all political speeches in the U.S. seem to have to end with, God bless you, and God bless the United States of America, right? If we have to bring God into politics, can't we say God bless the people of every nation? I mean, would, that, would that be so bad? I mean, that includes us, right? I mean, uh, politicians know, however, that the United States is a highly religious nation in which Gallup polls show that 90% of Americans profess to believing in God, which is a number that has held steadily with only a slight decrease since the 1940s. More than 9 in 10 Americans still say yes when asked the basic question, do you believe in God, without being able to nuance it. This is down only slightly from 1940. However, 20 
to 30% of Americans will admit that there is an element of doubt mixed in to their belief in God, if given a chance to nuance that. And about 12% of Americans, uh, 12% of that 90% who say that they believe in God, if given a choice, prefer to say that they believe in a universal spirit or higher power instead of God, like the spirit of life. So I'm particularly interested in that growing demographic, according to Gallup polls, that's open to nuancing their traditional theology. It's precisely that demographic that may find language like spirit of life and power of love to be a refreshing alternative to the baggage that comes with that heavy traditional word, God. Along these lines, some of you may have seen the October 1st headline in USA Today, Unitarian Faith Growing Nationwide. Unitarian um, Universalist congregations hold growing appeal throughout the U.S. The article reported that uh, Unitarian Universalism grew nationally by 15.8% from 2000 to 2010, a lot of that in the South. Relatedly, our current new member class here at UUCF includes 16 potential new members, which is always welcome news. Now, for me, as a recent convert to Unitarian Universalism, and I suspect for increasing numbers of people, UUism presents a unique opportunity to build a religion that is truly relevant to the 21st century, to our 21st century knowledge, to our 21st century experience. Related to the challenge of being relevant to the 21st century, some of you may have seen other headlines this past week, Albert Einstein's God Letter, expected to sell at auction. Now, we need to get a copy of that um, for our auction because that handwritten, letter, uh, that handwritten letter written by physicist Albert Einstein a year before his death expressing his view on religion will be sold at eBay this month for an opening bid of $3 million. So that could pay for our building and our budget for a few, few years. Uh, if any of you have some old Einstein letters in your attic, let us know. Einstein wrote the letter in German on January 3, 1954, on Princeton University letterhead to philosopher Eric Guntkind after he read Guntkind's book, Choose Life, the Biblical Call to Revolt. In the letter he wrote, quote, The word God is for me nothing more than the expression and product of human weakness. The Bible, a collection of honorable but still primitive legends, which are nevertheless pretty childish, No interpretation, no matter how subtle, can for me change this. He went on to say that he highly values being Jewish, but does not think the Jews are chosen people in any unique sense. So he has things to say for religion all around. Now, as our spoken meditation from Dr. Edwards asked, the question before us is, what would it be like to be religious without fudging our best thoughts, without repressing anything that we've learned? Or consider the quote on the cover of your order of service from Layla Ibrahim. She's the director of children and family ministries at First Unitarian Church of Oakland, California. She helped design a t-shirt a few years back for the UU Young Adult Network that read, It's a blessing each of us was born. It matters what we do with our lives. What each of us knows about God, with a little g, is a piece of the truth. We don't have to do it alone. Unitarian Universalism. It's not a bad definition of Unitarian Universalism. One of my goals for us here at UUCF is to come up with a short slogan, an elevator speech for a congregation. It's something you can say if you get on an elevator with someone, have five floors, and they say, you know, what, what church do you go to? What congregation do you go to? How do you, how do you answer that in a compelling way when 30 seconds or less? Uh, 
Ibrahim's words are longer than I would actually prefer for whatever slogan we come up with, but they're pretty good. They're a pretty good starting point. And notice that she did make that word God lowercase, perhaps an indication that what she means by the word, that she means for the word God to be different, broader, and more inclusive than that monolithic capital G God of traditional theism. Uh, But despite our best intentions of trying to redefine terms, uh, the word God for many people just has a lot of baggage. It's really, really heavy. Uh, For for many people, the word God almost inevitably brings to mind an image of an old white man with a beard, if you're honest, like Zeus, or like the figure in Michelangelo's painting of the Sistine Chapel, reaching out his hand to Adam, another man. Uh, The word God also uh, almost inevitably connotes some of those classic Greek philosophic categories of omniscience, omnipotence, all-good, all-loving, etc. But I'm not convinced that those classic Greek philosophical categories are necessarily helpful for us in regard to what we're trying to say or should be trying to say in the 21st century if we're going to use the word God. One of the long-standing criticisms of God, as traditionally understood, has been the problem of the existence of evil. How can an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God permit evil to exist, such as widespread abuse, war, natural disasters? You know, if God's all-knowing, God knows about the evil. If God's all-powerful, God can do something about it. If God's all-good, God would want to. Probably heard this before. Uh, In contrast, I invite you to consider that our definition of the word God has perhaps been constrained in a few different ways. Now, if we had another few hours, I would give you many of them, uh, but I would like to explore two with you this morning. First, our view of God has been too constrained in the insistence that God must be the perfection of these uh, Greek philosophic categories that have been with us for about 2,500 years now. It's sometimes been said that if humans have self-aware knowledge, Oh, that, well, that must have derived from an all-knowing God. If humans have power, that must derive from an all-powerful God. If humans have capacity for goodness, it must come from an all-good God. A major problem with this whole line of thinking is that it is exceedingly anthropomorphic. That is, it creates God in the image of humanity. Think of anthro like anthropology, morphic like the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, however you want to think about it, uh, makes God to be like humans. As Voltaire said, if God has made us in God's image, we wasted no time in returning the favor. (laughs) But after Darwin, after Copernicus, after Einstein, we know that humans are not a little lower than the angels, but are merely a little higher than the apes. We're neither the pinnacle of all creation nor the center of the universe. We're merely the most advanced species on a planet that, again, is just one peripheral planet in a spiral galaxy that in turn is one of more than 100 billion galaxies. So in this postmodern age of normal nihilism, in which we're faced with the radical historical contingency of our own existence, envisioning God as a, perfected, um, as a projected perfection of our perceived best traits as a species, seems increasingly unwise and even untenable. Along these lines, we heard earlier in Einstein's letter that the word God is for me nothing more than the expression and product of human weakness. Freud would agree. But during the final year of Einstein's life, he also spoke about the desire to experience the universe as a single cosmic whole. That desire sounds to me a lot like our seventh principle of the interdependent web of all existence. 
And such an approach can help us solve the traditional problem of the existence of evil. That single cosmic whole or interdependent web of all existence necessarily includes everything. I think we miss that point sometimes. It necessarily includes the interdependent web of all existence, the cosmic whole. That includes everything, creation and destruction, what we humans perceive of as good and what we perceive of as evil. Here we Westerners have some lessons to learn from some strands of Hinduism, which include the so-called Hindu trinity of Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the sustainer, and Shiva, the destroyer, the transformer, all as vital aspects of what need to be meant by the word God. To review, I'm not, I'm not convinced that those traditional Greek philosophic categories are sufficient for talking about God in the 21st century. I'm not sure it's helpful to think of some separate supreme being out there, whatever that would mean. What's out there is Saturn and Jupiter and Pluto and other galaxies, right? We don't think we live in a three-tiered universe we're on the other, anymore. We're on the other side of the, where God is up and, you know, hell is down, right? Down is China or Australia. Uh, so, this, this point of view is related to a second way that our view of God has perhaps um, been too constrained, the insistence that God is a noun. And it would perhaps be much better to say that God is more like a verb. So perhaps we should be talking not about God, but about Godding, as an act we can do, a process we can participate in. Not God as a static, unchanging thing out there somewhere, wherever that someplace would be. Here, I think the Buddhists get it right that everything is in a state of impermanence, flux, and evolution. And to resist that truth that everything is changing, including God, creates suffering for yourself, creates suffering for others. Indeed, much suffering has resulted from various groups insisting that they know exactly how God is, how God has always been, and how God will always be forever and ever. Amen. The corollary is that everyone for all time must conform to this unchanging divine standard proclaimed by humans. Such claims deny the messy complexity that is our pluralistic postmodern reality. And honestly, the messiness that has always been historical reality. Now, one way that we Unitarian Universalists have sought to resist this trap is by not having a creed that everyone has to espouse belief in. Instead of an orthodoxy, we have principles and sources that try to shape a process of building religious community that is as inclusive and as diverse as possible. The downside is that our principles and sources are all process and no testimony. In the words of a former UUA president, they describe a process for approaching religious depths, but they testify to no intimate acquaintance with the depths themselves. Testimony is an old evangelical word. You know, can I get a witness? Who, who will testify? But perhaps it's a word we Unitarian Universalists could benefit from reclaiming, but on our own terms. Our first source adamantly affirms direct experience of transcending mystery and wonder as a primary source of Unitarian Universalism. But it doesn't necessitate sharing that direct experience with others. And we should be honest that testifying about our first-hand experience can be intimidating in UU settings. It can be intimidating because many UUs are hard-lying rationalists and skeptics. But rationalists need to be challenged by mystics and vice versa. 
the rationalist tendency can be to always criticize alleged religious experiences, spiritual experiences, without ever testing for him or herself if maybe I could experience that too if I created some time and space for doing so. That's the equivalent of writing a book all about apples without ever bothering to actually taste an apple for yourself and see if they actually exist. At the same time, mystics can gain perspective from having their firsthand experiences evaluated through the rational tools like neuroscience, psychology, sociology. Now, there's much more I'd like to say about the challenge of finding a language of reason and reverence that is worthy of a 21st century knowledge and experience. But for now, the sermon needs to draw to a close. I'll end by sharing with you a brief testimony from my own direct experience. As an undergraduate um, double major in religion and philosophy, I gave serious thought to following Dr. Edwards' footsteps and um, pursuing graduate work in contemporary continental philosophy. I also thought about becoming a religion professor. But in the end, I felt more strongly called to become a minister. As much as I benefit from academic theory, I am even more interested in experimenting with how the world can be changed for the better, not in my head and not in a book, but in places like Frederick, in places like here, you know, really, not just theoretically. But I don't think that I came to that decision completely on my own. I could give you the long version of the story, but I'll give you the, the short version. I was in my college dorm room and I was typing my application to Harvard Divinity School. I applied to a number of different places. Uh, and in a different way than I'd really experienced uh, at another time in my life, I, everything was in, the, the main part of the application was in, the references were in, there was one final little like housing part that was required. And as I was actually typing it on a typewriter. This was a, a while ago before you... Uh, anyway, uh, and I really, I got this distinct sense of, no, this is not for you. Now, it wasn't a voice saying, Carl, do not apply to Harvard Divinity School, uh, you know, so, because God is not James Earl Jones, uh, uh, and neither is God Ellen DeGeneres or Morgan Freeman, but... I did get this sense that, that felt like it came not just... And there's plenty of times I've discerned things within myself and weighed them. This felt like it came... It felt different. That's, that's all I can say. And I can share more about that later. But, you know, was that experience God speaking to me? Was it the power of love or the spirit of life, you know, welling up within me, telling me what would be more ultimately life-giving to me? Honestly, there's no way to prove it or test it, for sure, from our finite human perspective. But that experience and others like it are part of my understanding of that first source of UUism, direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder. William, William James, one of my favorite theologians, he called God simply the more, M-O-R-E. I take that to mean at minimum that there is much more to the universe than we can know or perhaps than we will ever know. As some people, you may have heard quantum physicists say, the universe is not only stranger than we know, but stranger than we can know. Although there are definitely times when it's helpful to discuss our beliefs at an objective, rational, verifiable, testable level, it's equally important, in my opinion, to create safe spaces in which we can talk about our subjective, direct experience, even if we can't prove it definitively. In that spirit, I invite you to be open to the 
more that may in the coming days and weeks break through your preconceived notions of what is possible. I invite you to consider what it might mean to focus on becoming as much as being, participation more than perfection, and godding more than God. In a few moments, I'm going to invite us to sing the song Spirit of Life once more. If you know know the words, I invite you to leave your hymn book closed and sing from memory. If you need to open them, it's 123. And whether you listen in a few moments with theistic or atheistic ears, I invite you as you sing to listen to the lyrics as if for the first time. Be attentive to what word or phrase particularly stands out to you. It might be a different word or phrase than you expect. After we finish singing, There'll be two, I invite you to close your eyes and there'll be two minutes of silence. During that two minutes, I invite you, you'll hear a bell, and then after two minutes, you'll hear a second bell. I invite you to reflect on that, whatever word or phrase stands out to you from this hymn, Spirit of Life. You may even find yourself having the experience of something more. <laughs>